0: Well, just before we dig in, I'd like to make an introduction. Uh, I'm excited to introduce or reintroduce to some of you to Tyler Ballou, standing right in the back. Tyler, give a big wave to everybody. You can all turn around. There's Tyler. Yeah. Um, That's Caleb clapping for you. He's really excited to see you. And I agree. So Tyler started at 7 Mile Road on Monday as the director of equipping. Those of you who maybe recognize Tyler know that he served as a church planning resident here for a season. And we're excited that in God's providence, he's he's come home. We're we're happy to have him here. He is going to be serving as a director of equipping meaning. He'll be working with volunteer teams, anything the body gathered. So he'll be helping to oversee our Sunday mornings, our discipleship tracks, and our equipping. Um, Tyler's going to be a great addition to the team. We already know and love Tyler. We've run with him for a long time. He is us, and we're excited to have him on the team. Uh, If you're trying to chart along with our org chart as well, just, just for note, Peter, in the midst of COVID, shifted over to become our executive pastor. There was so much coming at us, so much required. He's done a really beautiful job in that role. And over the summer, he's going to be transitioning back to be on our house church team because we are in the position of, pretty soon, multiplying to close to 50 house churches, and we take very seriously the health of our leaders, and we want to continue to be a decentralized body. So that's actually going to be recognized in our staffing and the way that we continue to do what we're doing. So Michael and Peter and Peyton and Sarah will be running at the health of our house churches and the training of our house church shepherds, even as Tyler steps in to really continue to help bolster our gathered experience. So. Please make sure you say hello to Tyler, welcome him, welcome him back. Uh, We couldn't be happier to have him on the team. Um, If you don't think it's fun to go around in circles, to just go round and round and round, you've never ridden a merry-go-round with a three-year-old, because it's fun. I gotta tell you, when you're in the right place, those trips round and round are delightful. Years ago, my family and I, who are sitting right down here, Happy Mother's Day, you're a champ, sitting with three boys on the front row. um, this crew, we all went to Chattanooga, Tennessee, and uh, we went to Chattanooga, Tennessee, and there's a, little, there's a little park called Coolidge Park that has a restored carousel, a merry-go-round. It's 130 years old, and it's been loving, res- lovingly restored. Every piece has been rebuilt and painted, and so they've got the typical grand horses that you ride up and down on, but they also, they, maybe you've seen these, they have some of the exotics. You can ride on a tiger that's ready to pounce, or a lion, and my boys and I stumbled into this place and we started taking rides on this Coolidge Park antique merry-go-round. And we had the best time. And each time it finished, they would say, let's go around again. Let's go around again. Because the merry-go-round, though you're only going in circles, there's something so delightful about the experience together in the cyclical nature. Round and round again, you finish the ride and you're like, let's do it again. And so there we were taking pictures with the different animals and going round and round and round again. And this morning, the, the beatitude that we're going to step into in some ways is like an invitation to that sort of ride. It's cyclical in nature. And each rotation increases the joy over the last. And just to give us some context to the invitation into this ride, I just want us to feel kind of where we've been. You've been charting along with us. We're in the midst of this series that we're calling Happy. In essence, it's a a study of the Beatitudes of Jesus, his blessings where he's sketching out what is the good life in God's economy. And the first three Beatitudes, some theologians call the empty Beatitudes. The empty Beatitudes because, as you'll recall, blessed are the poor in spirit. We are bankrupt in and of ourselves. This is where Jesus starts his most famous sermon. And then he says, and once we recognize our impoverishment of spirit, blessed are those who mourn, they actually grieve the state of affairs, that they are bankrupt and broken, that even our best deeds are marked by sinfulness and selfishness. And then, out of that, we become meek. We become meek, we don't demand our rights, because we realize that we have been emptied. You see, poverty of spirit, mourning, and meekness is all emptying work to come to Jesus, we have to come empty and needy. But then we have this hinge that was preached last week by Michael. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. You see, once emptied, we realize our emptiness before God and we begin to plead with him, Jesus says, that there's a blessing for those that plead with God and say, would you fill us with your character? And he actually will do that. And after that hinge beatitude, what you will notice is that the rest of the blessings that Jesus is going to speak, they sound different. They are different. They're what some theologians call the full beatitudes. We're not in the process of being emptied of all that we came in with, but now because God has filled us with his very presence, we can pour out into the world. He says, Blessed are the merciful the full of mercy, that you have been filled with something that now can be extended out into the world. And that the interesting reality about this particular beatitude in the scope of all of the beatitudes, it is the only one that what you give is what will be received. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Round and round we go. You see, this beatitude is cyclical. It's inviting us into a ride that says, you receive mercy and you give mercy and you receive mercy and you give mercy. And then when you finish the ride, you say, around again. In many ways, this morning is an extended hand from Jesus inviting you to take a ride on the mercy go-round. You see what I did there? It's no longer the merry-go-round, it's the mercy go-round. You see, Jesus is saying there's a, there's a beautiful ride that will induce joy that each time around it gets richer and fuller as you receive and extend mercy. And so we want to go on this journey. We want to plumb the power of this beatitude to understand what is the joy of getting to experience all that Jesus is, is, is marking out for us as we both give and receive mercy. So let's turn our attention to this text and see if we can make sense of it together. In order to make sense of blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, we better get a good working definition of mercy. It's used twice in this one verse, it is central to our idea. So what is mercy? What is it now that we're filled with God's character that we are extending out into the world? Well, one just shorthand definition that some of you may have heard before, just to lay an initial foundation. Oftentimes it's helpful to define mercy in conjunction with grace. Those are two words that often come as a package deal and if we're not careful, we can just treat them as synonymous or interchangeable, but they're not. They're companions, but they're not synonymous. Mercy is that you do not get what you do deserve. So you don't get what you do deserve. We deserve judgment, but judgment is withheld. Judgment is passed over. That, that you don't get what you do deserve. Grace, on the other hand, is you do get what you don't deserve. Grace is not only is judgment withheld, but rich blessings are poured out on those that definitely don't deserve those blessings. Grace and mercy in God's economy are a one-two punch, and mercy is not giving others what they deserve. It's interesting if, if some of you in your maybe in your job and corporate experience, maybe you've been through a branding experience or a moment where you're trying to forge a mission statement or values, the things that we're going to paint on the walls and that we're going to repeat over and over. If you've ever been a part of a process like that, you know that people fight really hard to get every word just right and in the right place because, well, this word needs to come before that one because we're going to repeat it in this way. and It's really crucial in moments where you're codifying who are we going to be to get the words right there's one particular moment in the scriptures where God does this for himself. Moses says to God, I want to see you. And God says, I'm going to show myself to you. And not only that, I'm going to tell you who I am. And it's unlike any other place in the scriptures because God is revealing the fullness of his character in his own words, a direct quotation. And you get the sense that this quotation, like if God had a Twitter feed, this would be what would This would be what would describe who He is, right? This would be on the back of His business card, each word perfectly selected to say, this is who I am. Let me me turn there with you. Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. This is God's self-revelation. In very few words, describing exactly who He is. Look at this text with me. He says, The Lord passed before him, passed before Moses, and He proclaimed, this is Him declaring, who am I? The Lord "...the Lord, a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and guilt, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation." God's self-declaration. Do you want to know what I am like? Here's what I am like. And he has chosen the words and placed them in order. And what I want you to hear is this. When God's having a draft pick, when he's trying to pick the right words and put them in order, the first word that God says, okay, you want to know what I'm like? Listen, listen. I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. The first word that rolls off of his lips when he's trying to declare to the world, what makes me glorious? What makes me unlike everyone else? In essence, what he's saying, do you want to know what God is like? Let me tell you what I am like. I don't give people what they deserve. That's what God is like. It's a full-time job for God withholding his justice. If God were to be totally and completely fair and give us what we deserve, He would have been done with humanity a very long time ago. His full-time job is withholding what is true justice being poured out because He is merciful. The core of who He is. This is who God is. And the truth is, it sounds really nice in one breath, but if we're honest, The place in us, and we all have it, where we want what's fair and right and just, it offends us in certain ways. It challenges us in certain ways. It reminds me of Javert. Have you ever seen Les Mis? Seen, read Victor Hugo's classic Les Mis. And in this story, Valjean is the main character, a former convict that has broken parole, and he has now become this magnanimous character that is that is meeting out mercy and grace in the world. And Javert is the man, he's the police chief who's chasing down the convict that broke from parole. And Javert represents all that is fair and right and good, doing it exactly in order. Javert, that's who he is. And it undoes him that Valjean is in the world. It undoes him that there could be someone like this that used to be like that, but now has changed. The way that Victor Hugo says it, his... His commentary on Javert is this. He says, a benevolent malefactor, this is his commentary about um, starting with Valjean. He says, a benevolent malefactor, merciful, gentle, a convict that returns good for evil and gives back pardon for hatred, preferring pity to vengeance and preferring to, preferring to ruin himself rather than to ruin his enemy. Saving him who had smitten him, kneeling on the heights of virtue more nearly akin to an angel than to a man, Javert was constrained to admit to himself that this monster, in fact, did exist. And things could not go on in this manner. You see, what Hugo was saying is that when someone is really committed to fairness and they really bump into mercy, they think, that's not okay. It doesn't work like that. They need to get what they deserve. That's not the way it works in the world. And, you know, at first blush, we go, well, thank goodness I'm not like Javert. And the challenge this week is I've sat in, the, in my study with these scriptures open. And so often when we show up to read the scriptures, what we find out is that they're actually reading us. And the uncomfortable reality this week in my, in my study is that I realized I have some profound Javert tendencies. Let me share with you a couple of the ways that the scriptures say we ought to show mercy. These are the places where I felt the Holy Spirit nudging and challenging and exposing me. Two primary ways that mercy is worked out practically in the world. One, helping the undeserving. To help the undeserving. This is where mercy shows up. This is how mercy gets talked about in the scriptures. To help those that don't deserve it. But, you know, Javert and the justice police, they're always working this fairness calculator. They look at someone who's in a mess and they start working the calculator. Well, is this fair? And they start going, well, this person, they made a series of bad decisions. They, they, uh, they've done a lot of bad things and as a result, all of these bad things are happening to him. The truth is, this is not my deal. This is not on me. And they're just getting what they deserved. And the truth is that We start to realize in moments where where the limits of our mercy exist when we pay attention to how do we respond to the undeserving. The merciful, they scrap this fairness calculus. They don't have a fairness calculator. They They don't operate in that way. They do this divine dance, pouring out mercy everywhere they go, looking for the least deserving. They actually want to bless and meet with those that feel like they're undeserving. But the truth is, we all have some category of the undeserving that we slowly start to distance ourselves and look down at. I just want to challenge you, how do you view the the undeserving? What about the, the homeless man or woman on the corner that's asking for money? Is it that a fairness calculator that immediately works first in our mind of, well, how did they end up here, and they've made a series of bad decisions, and they, they're really just getting what they deserve. This is, this is not my deal. Or maybe it's the addict in recovery. Maybe it's the prisoner. No one comes to, comes to see because they've just finally gotten what they deserve. Maybe there's certain categories of people that if they're in trouble, they're beyond your reach. Maybe they have A different sexual orientation maybe it's someone that whatever it is they have been defined into some sort of category that they are beyond the reach of my help because quite frankly whatever's coming to them they deserved and the truth is it's in the moments where we examine and we start looking around at who do we think is undeserving and how does our heart respond there that's where we begin to realize that there are javert tendencies lurking somewhere in the shadows And if not there, the second place that the scriptures talk about mercy most consistently is here, forgiving without limit. Forgiving without limit. Do you remember the story between Peter and Jesus where Peter says, Jesus, how many times do I have to forgive if someone sins against me? And then you get the sense that Peter's trying to be magnanimous and go like, certainly not. He goes, Jesus, like, do I have to do it seven times? As if in his mind, he's picking the biggest number he could imagine that he would actually forgive someone over and over. He's going, would I really have to do it seven times, Jesus? And Jesus says back to him, he takes it to the point of absurdity real quickly. He goes, no, not seven times, Peter. Seventy times seven. What's he saying? He's going, you've got to get to the place where you can't count anymore. The counting is part of the problem, Peter. So I'm going to give you a number that you're going to lose count somewhere along the way because you can't have a fairness calculator and show mercy. And as I sat with this text and I considered the realities of what Jesus is challenging us into to say, what does it mean to display mercy in the world? I realized that I have defined it like this. I've said, I will show mercy to this point. And it was like the Holy Spirit showed up and said, let's... let's examine a few of these relationships close to you in your life, Jeremiah. Where you have extended the hand of forgiveness time and time again, but the other person, they're just not developing as quickly as you had expected. They haven't received it and responded to it in the ways that you think make sense. And quite frankly, this process is too slow and too painful. And what I have done in my heart, as I said, my mercy goes this far and no further. I can't keep going slowly on this road with someone that's not ready to actually be changed. And what the Holy Spirit was speaking through this text is this, that's not mercy. My mercy that goes this far and no further is not the sort of mercy that's in the text. That, that has these very clear Parameters where I don't go any further, and I actually am willing to wash my hands of the, the person who's moving too slowly in process, I began to realize that my Javert heart is beating strong in my chest. You see, in, the, in Les Mis, there's this moment where Valjean finally, Valjean, the, the convict that is broken parole, where he first really tastes mercy. And those of you who've, who've heard the story, you know there's this bishop, Bishop Myriel, who welcomes Valjean into his home. This is when he's on the run and he's just a mess. He can't find a break in life and he welcomes him in and he gives him a meal and he gives him a warm bed. And in that place, he wakes in the middle of the night and he decides, I'm going to rob the bishop. He steals his silver and he steals off into the night and he gets caught by the police and dragged back to the bishop and they throw him in front of him and he says, is this all of your stuff? Did he rob you? And he goes, that is all of my stuff, but he didn't rob me. I gave it to him. And the one thing you forgot, my friend, is the candlesticks. Now let me get them for you. And he hands the candlesticks to him. And then he hugs him and he whispers in his ear and he says, With these candlesticks, I have purchased your soul. And Valjean has come face to face with mercy, mercy that doesn't have bounds, that knows no end. The way that Victor Hugo comments on the character of Bishop Myriel, this is what he says There are men who dig for gold. But this man, he dug for compassion. Poverty was his gold mine. And the universality of suffering was a reason for the universality of charity. What's he saying? Bishop Myriel realized that the baseline of the human existence is that everyone suffers. And for that reason, everyone is longing to be loved the bishop decided that I'm going to respond differently to the world. He responds in mercy in a way that unlocks Valjean's heart to begin to be transformed. This is the invitation to extend this sort of forgiveness without limit. Forgiveness without limit. Just before we press on, might I ask you, where do you find the parameters, the edges, the limits to your mercy? Where right now, as you think about the undeserving, you think about those who've sinned against you, where might there be a a Javert tendency in you? A tendency to say, well, they're getting what they deserve and my fairness demands that I can only go this far and no further. It raises the question for me, What I've been wrestling with is, okay, I see mercy, God. I see that it's your character, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful. I see that it's your character and that you're saying there's blessings if I extend it. But it raises the question, how do we become merciful? How does this become true of us? Two notes. Two notes on how we grow in mercy. The first, you shouldn't be surprised if you've been on this journey with us. The first four Beatitudes shepherd us into mercy. Jesus, in his brilliance as this teacher, he's laying out the the steps one after another, and he's going, if you go on this journey with me of the blessed life, you will experience what it means to have mercy erupting from your soul. If you will just come to terms with the fact that you are impoverished of spirit, you're bankrupt and you will grieve you will mourn before God about your bankruptcy and you will grow in meekness realizing i'm not going to pound my fist and demand my way anymore and then before God you plead with him to fill you with his character what you realize is this when jesus says blessed are the merciful our mercy is not the first mercy if we have taken these steps to the beatitudes we are already awash in mercy we are impoverished before God. We have nothing to offer Him, yet He pours out His blessings on us. He is tending to us. He's not giving us what we deserve. You see, when we begin to taste it like this, it unlocks mercy in us. It's the smug, religious person who's done everything right. It's like the church lady, Dana Carvey in Saturday Night Live. Isn't that special? You know the church lady? It's, it's the church lady in us, the smug religious person who's done everything right that folds their arms, and when they see somebody that's really struggling, they sneer and they go, this is what they deserved. I would have never responded that way. How could they think to speak that way, do that thing? Hmm. 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 You yeah, know, it's like that good religious grunt. If we have not tasted mercy and been emptied before God, we will become smug, pious, religious people, sneering, knowing nothing of the character of God. You see, when we define Christianity and we bypass the first four Beatitudes, which incidentally a lot of people do, what does it mean to be a Christian? Well, it means to be a nice person. Be merciful. Be kind to people. No, no, no. What does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be bankrupt before God and to mourn your bankruptcy, and to become meek, and to beg him to fill you with something from outside of yourself. That's what it means to be a Christian. Then you will be capable to extend mercy into the world, and not as a, pug and, and pious, a smug and pious religious person. You'll actually be like Valjean. Valjean, who had his soul purchased by the silver candlesticks. Do you know how his story continues? If you've seen Les Mis, you do. He meets a woman named Fantine, She's a prostitute. She's dying. She's a mess. She had a daughter in an adulterous relationship named Cosette. And when Valjean meets Fantine, all she can say is mercy. Have mercy. I am dying in a pile of my own filth. In a sense, what many looked at Fantine and believed is she's finally getting what she deserved. And Valjean, he had tasted something different. And so he's, He loved this woman. He tended her. He made sure she was comfortable in her death. And as she was dying, he made a pledge to her. He said, I will find your daughter and I will raise her like my own. He had tremendous capacity for mercy because he had been emptied before he had been filled. Listen, if you come full to God, full of all of your righteousness and you're so good and you've got it all together, when it counts when someone is before you saying, have mercy on me, you will be empty. You will have nothing to give in that moment. But if you come empty before God and he is the one who touches you and speaks blessing and promise over you and fills you with his presence, when the moment of need shows up, you will be full of mercy. You see, we have to taste mercy and receive it. It has to melt and to transform us if we are going to respond like this. One second note on how we grow in mercy. Look back at Matthew 5, 3-7 with me. And would you just pay attention to how radically communal these verses are? You'll see it highlighted on the screen behind me as I read it. But, but listen, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Now this is a note that we could make every week in this series, but I just want to make sure we see it clearly here. Jesus' good life that he's leading us into is radically communal. You cannot experience the good life that God has for you alone. I don't mean like alone, like single. This isn't a question of being single or married or being in a family. It's like being committed to a community. Being with people who know you and you know them because what happens when you really lean in and you risk being known? You're going to need mercy. And you're going to have to extend mercy because sinners living really close together, we experience the breach, the gap, the struggle together. And that's where mercy is experienced. So I just don't want us to miss the they and the theirs. If you want to grow in mercy, you have to go on the journey of being emptied before God with men and women locked in in arm-in-arm with you. And as you experience that mercy, you will become the sort of person that Jesus is talking about. Blessed are the merciful. Well, one final question before we wrap. What happens when we extend mercy into the world? We've defined mercy. It's not getting what we deserve. That's who God is. It's the first word that He chooses to describe Himself to us. And we've said, well, How do we get there? We actually have to taste it by going on this journey of being emptied and doing it together. So that's what it is. That's how we get it. What happens when we show it in the world? Listen, this is the only beatitude where what we give is what we receive. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Mercy multiplies. It swells. It grows on itself. Go around again, mercy says. What I have received, I'm extending into the world, and as I extend it, I receive it, and it delights my heart, and I want to extend it. And we say, go around again like a child being swept up in the joy of the good life that Jesus has purchased for us. You see, this is true now. If you're beginning to taste this with a group of people around you, what you will realize is that it becomes a kingdom outpost. It becomes a taste of what God has for us here on the earth. If you really commit to people, and when they sin against you, which they will, they disappoint you, which they will, you cover over with mercy. If you make that your posture, and you continue to do that, what you will see is that they begin to do the same for you, and we create little pockets of kingdom people tasting kingdom joy even in this world. It's possible here on earth. This is why we pray, God, let your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. We get to taste it in little ways together. But one day at his throne, we will see that it is ultimately true. Jesus, when he judges the world, is going to separate into the left and the right the sheep and the goats. And do you know what the dividing factor is at his at his throne room judgment in Matthew 25? Those who showed mercy and those who didn't. Those who showed mercy and those who didn't. Did you feed me when I was hungry? Did you clothe me when I was naked? Did you visit me when I was in prison? Which raises the question, are we earning God's favor in doing these things? Which I hope by now what you've heard is absolutely not. That it's the soul that has been emptied and saturated in mercy that pours it out so naturally because it's the thing that's in me. God put it in me. It becomes the evidence that in fact the grace and the mercy of Jesus have found purchase in my soul. And on that day is going to go, who showed mercy and who didn't? That's the cleanest way to make sense of who's with me, who knows me, and who doesn't. You see, ultimately, what we are going to find is this, that we consider this mercy go-round that we're invited into, that Jesus initiated this mercy go-round, and he's its destination. He initiated it, and and he is its destination. That when Jesus was going to the cross, this character of God was finally and completely and perfectly being displayed. I am the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Have you ever seen it more clearly than as Jesus does not fight back, as he is pinned to the tree, and as he is bleeding and dying, there's this moment where these folks, their wounds are what caused his or pardon me, their acts are what caused his wounds and as he's bleeding and dying, they're hurling insults at him. They are mocking him even while he's bleeding and dying under the weight of their blows. And in that moment, he takes a deep breath and he says, Father, forgive them. They don't understand what they're doing. In essence, what he's saying is, Mercy. Mercy. Oh, God, don't give them what they deserve. And the truth is, every one of us is in that crowd. Your sin and mine are what wounded the Son of Glory. And in that moment, he's dying under the weight of your sin and mine. And God, so perfectly, because he is the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, he looks back and he goes, God, give them mercy. Please don't give them what they deserve. And it's only as we receive that, We begin to meditate on his 70 times 7 forgiveness. He has lost count because he never was counting to begin with. He is covering us over with his mercy and his grace. It's as we receive that, that our hearts are warmed and transformed. If you're new to all of this, let me just say to you, mercy is available to you. That Jesus has bled and died to speak a better word over your life, to speak forgiveness in the moments where you are most undeserving and the moments where your forgiveness is 70 times 7 needed and he keeps pouring it out. And to those of you who are Christians who have already said yes to Jesus, please hear this final note. When we realize that this is what Jesus has done to secure mercy for us, we realize that in the same moment by the Power of His blood, He purchased the ability for us to now go and extend mercy in the world. You have the blood-bought capacity to be the sort of men and women that care for the undeserving, that forgive 70 times 7 to those around you, forgiving without limit, that as we live in this way, we begin to taste the good life and we extend God's character powerfully and beautifully into the world. Let's be the sort of people that jump on the mercy go-around and just continue to say, let's go around again. Go around again, receiving mercy, extending mercy, receiving mercy, extending mercy. This is the good life in Jesus' economy. He says there will be tremendous blessings on the head of the people who say, go around again. Let me pray for us. So God, would you have mercy on our Javert hearts. I need forgiveness, God. Would you forgive me for the ways that I so foolishly Try to exact justice and fairness and hold the standard up and look down on people who aren't progressing fast enough. Where that's true of me, I pray that you would break it apart and that you would put your very character in its place, that we would be people who extend mercy in the world because we realize how deeply we have received it. Jesus, there's no one like you. We thank you for your words, your teaching and instruction, for your life and the completed work on the cross. Help us to be people who extend mercy in the world and who receive it powerfully from You. It's in Your name we pray. Amen.